Let's pray. Gracious God, you indeed are holy, and we are grateful to be in your presence with one another and to have the opportunity to open up your word, to dive into your story, to learn from it. God, we ask that right now you would give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And I ask that you would take my words and that you would use them for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the first scripture passage that Gene read this morning tells the story of the fall of Israel, which came about 200 years after Jeroboam. Those of you who've been journeying along in the story with us will remember this. About 200 years after Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the northern and the southern kingdoms. From generation to generation, Israel, remember Israel was the the uh, northern kingdom taking up ten different tribes. And Israel's kings, from generation to generation, they spun more and more out of control. To put it plainly, the ten tribes in the north, along this spinning out of control, lost their identity. They forgot who they were. They adopted the, the pagan customs of their Canaanite neighbors. They abandoned the commandments that were given to Moses, and they, they worshipped other gods and created all kinds of idols. And they ignored the prophets who often warned them that they had become stiff-necked and rebellious people. The northern tribes had fallen so far that, that we read at the end of Second Kings 17 that God removed them from his presence. Things had to have gotten pretty bad. Things had to have gotten pretty bad if it got so bad that God had to remove himself from their presence. The ten lost tribes of Israel have been a mystery for scholars and historians for a long, long time. Different people groups have claimed that they are the long lost descendants of the ten, the ten tribes from the north. But the reality is there's, there's no real way to know what, what happened to those ten tribes. But we do know that they forgot their identity, that they forgot who they were. They forgot that they were God's people, and they actively turned away from what God had for them. Now we should see the actions of of Israel, of the northern kingdom, and their consequences as a massive warning to us. We should. One translation of 2 Kings here says that the tribes worshipped emptiness, And because they worshipped emptiness, they themselves became empty. They essentially became like the false gods that they worshipped. Hallow without a purpose. We should hear those words and say, we better pay attention. We better pay attention. Now, while all of this was going on in Israel, remember the tribes to the south, Judah, really Jerusalem, remained. But, Our second reading from this morning reveals that their fate was very similar to the tribes in the north, the tribes of Israel. We pick up at 2 Kings chapter 25. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. 
So now as, as Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonian army, as they prepared to, to attack Jerusalem, they, they followed a, a type of uh, military tactic that was, was common during the Near East during, during this time. They, they would build these things called siege works outside the walls of the city. So if you're, you're to picture how Jerusalem looks, it's, it's a walled city, and they would build kind of camps around all the entrances so nothing could go in and nothing could go out. And then they would build these siege works often using Jewish slaves. So they would also often use the, 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 the people from who were inside who came out, they'd capture them, and then they'd build these things called siege works. Basically, instead of meeting on a, on a battlefield, as some of us think of when we think of, of, of war, or, or attacking a military base with concentrated effort, siege warriors, they would surround the city and cut off access to water, to food. Nothing could go in, nothing could go out. And then the warriors, these, these Babylonians, would, would use slaves to build a wall, or really a, a ramp, up to the wall, over the wall that surrounded Jerusalem, that surrounded the city. So the city that was, was under siege wouldn't attack, because they knew that as the people are building up, as the, the slaves are building the, the ramp to go up and over the wall, they would be attacking their own people. And so they would use their own people to build these walls and, and the people inside the walls said, we, we can't attack ourselves. We're not willing to, to attack ourselves. Um, I got to see one of these ancient siege ramps and how it would work uh, last summer near, near the Dead Sea at a place called Masada. Have any of you heard of, of Masada? Any of you been to Masada? It's, a, it's an incredible, incredible place. Uh, it's an ancient fortress in the southern part of Israel, and, and I'll never forget our drive. We, we did it in one day where we drove from the north and in, into the south, and, and, and the northern region is this kind of lush green, lots of water, full of plants, full of trees, and then you get to the south, and it's, it's desert. That's what you see. It's, it's desert. It only takes a few hours to do the drive from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Now, we don't have time to tell the whole story of Masada, but it was built by Herod the Great about 40 years before Jesus was born, and eventually was taken over by a group of, of Jewish rebels. It be kind, of, kind of became their, their base, if you will. It became a place for, for Jewish people who were on the run, on the run during the, the Second Temple period, around 70 AD, to, to hide from, from the Roman government, from the Roman military. And they'd hide there, and, and then eventually... Rome figured out, oh, this is where everybody's hiring. We need to, hiding, we need to go and attack them. So when you stand at the top of Masada, I don't know if you can, you can see at the very top of this, this plateau up there, and you look down, you see these, these different levels, these different, different steps, and you could see that those were the places where, where the Romans would, would kind of move up the mountain, set up camp, move up the mountain, set up another camp, and you can also maybe see in the back that where the red arrow is that there's a ramp that's going up the back end. And, and this is a, a picture, the bottom picture is actually one that is looking down from the top of the hill, down the ramp. So imagine that you're Jewish and you're, you're hiding in this fortress. You're hiding from, from, from Rome in this fortress. You look down and you see your former neighbors, your aunts and your uncles building a ramp up into your safe haven. You don't want to attack because they're your people. 
They're your people, so you don't want to attack them. But you also don't want them to finish. Because as soon as they finish, they're getting to where you are vulnerable. They're getting into your safe haven. It would have been awful. Today, you can, you can take a gondola um, to, to get up. There's a, a, a picture of, of me at the stairs of it. There's, you can get a gondola to go up into Masada. And many of the walls around the fortress are still standing or have been rebuilt, I should say. But the dirt ramp is still there. Dirt ramp is still there. It's about 200 feet high and 600 feet and 50 feet long. And it would have taken a, a long time to build. And as it came closer and closer to being completed, there's not a whole lot that the people inside the fortress would have been able to do. Long story short, the people of Masada decided to, to throw themselves over the mountain instead of being conquered themselves. They, they, they became martyrs. In the same way it took a long time to build that ramp, to build that ramp at Masada, it would have taken a couple years for the Babylonians to build the ramp up into Jerusalem as well. They would have come up from the south, up through the, the Kidron Valley, where you can, you can see on the screen as well, from the same direction, ironically enough, that King David would have used to attack the Jebusites almost 500 years earlier. And they would have built a, a similar type of ramp up into the, the city there, into Jerusalem. The Babylonians would have set up camps all the way around the city walls, again, cutting off anything that could come in or anything that could go out. And the siege started during King Zedekiah's ninth year. And it lasted until his eleventh year. So it took about two years to build these, these siege works. Now, some think that the reason the Babylonians took as long as they did to attack Jerusalem was because they were fighting off at the same time they were trying to get into Jerusalem. They were fighting off Egyptians from the south, so they had it coming from, from both sides. But I also think it's plausible to, to think that inside of Jerusalem, it, it took two years because Jerusalem was big enough to have two years of supplies. So they would have had two years of supplies before they had to go out. Two years of, of, of water, two years of, of food, so they wouldn't have to actually lead the city. They could survive for a while, but eventually, as the number increased, they would have to exit. They'd have to figure out how they were going to fill their supplies, and they were trapped. So we're told that he, Zedekiah, was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and, and took him to Babylon. This is after they had already broken through. On the seventh day, in the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. In Hebrew, the, the literal uh, translation for this, this person, uh, the, the commander of the imperial guard, uh, Nebuzardan, the, the original translation out of Hebrew is that his title, he's the chief executioner. He's the chief hitman. That, that's, that's what he is. He's the head slaughterer. And so he, he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar, he brings in this demolition specialist and he does his job. 
the Talmud, which is a, a collection of Jewish writings that's almost like a, colon to, uh, a commentary to Torah law, um, it, it, when it talks about this attack, it, it, it says that the men actually came in and they stayed for two days desecrating the temple. That they came in and they, they had a big party, they, they mocked everything that happened, it would have normally happened in the temple, and then they burnt it down. After destroying the city, after destroying the city, we're told that Nebuzan, the commander of the guard, carried into the exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace, that those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. So Israel and the northern kingdom fall around 722 B.C. and, and are led into captivity in, in Assyria and the surrounding regions. We, we don't know a whole lot about what happened to them after that. And then Judah and the southern kingdom about 135 years later. And they're led, most of them, into Babylon. It would have been incredibly, I don't, I don't know about you, but when I read these stories, I think it would be incredibly difficult to live in, in either Israel or, or Judah during these times. Even if you were one of the few who maybe was trying to follow along with, with what God had for you, even if you were one of the few who was still adhering to Mosaic law, your community and your government would have been constantly in a state of flux. Then, if you were actually fortunate enough to live through some of these outside vicious attacks, when the Syrians and the Babylonians came, you were either killed or taken captive. I mean, I'm I'm just speaking for myself, but if you would have been, it would have been difficult to remain faithful. It would have been difficult to say, all right, God, I'm all in. If I looked around and I saw this happening to my community, I'd say, it would have been difficult to remain faithful. So when we read these stories, I, I always try to put myself in, in the shoes of those who are during, living during that time and say, man, I would have been tempted to run too. I would have been, I, I, it would have been difficult to be faithful during this time. When my wife and I started dating, she made it clear that there were two requirements for movies that we would see together. Two requirements. Those requirements she holds to to this day, I should say, too. They can't be anything beyond PG-13. She just doesn't want to hear the bad language or, or see anything graphic. And secondly, they have to include some sort of redemption. They can't just kind of end with no hope. They can't just kind of end and say, oh, what happened? Well, there's, there's no hope. There has to be some sort of, of redemption. It can't end in some depressing way. Now, if someone were to make this part of the Bible into a movie, there's no way that she would watch it. Because there's no way it wouldn't be rated R. And there is, appears, no redemption yet in the story. This is a depressing part of the story. I was talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor, and she said, so, um, you're supposed to bring hope every Sunday in your sermon. How do you do that w- w- with this story? 
How, how do you do that in a, a story that just kind of ends with, with people going off into captivity or, or being killed? When the story ends, it appears that all hope is lost. The bloody takeover ends and, and those who actually live through the bloody takeover are led into an unfamiliar world. In an unfamiliar world, they're forced into slavery. It doesn't look like there's any redemption at all. Not yet, anyway. As we read these parts of the Bible, the temptation is to skip, just skip past them because they're hard. They're hard to read through. So let's just, let's just move beyond it. But for me, I know that, that the rest of the Bible becomes much richer as I, as I try to understand the significance of what's going on here. So I want to invite us for the next few minutes to kind of sit in this uncomfortable part of Scripture. This, this uncomfortable part of Scripture. Because the reality is, even when we face the inevitable difficulties of life, and we are bound to face some difficulties in our lives, we're still called to remain faithful. We're still called to remain faithful to, to who God has called us to be, to what God has for us, even when we face difficult times. In the same way that the people of Israel and Jerusalem couldn't see the whole picture, they, they, couldn't, they were living through a terrible time. They couldn't see the whole picture. We can't see the whole of God's story today either. But we can look at what the kings did during this time, during this demise. We can look at what the kings did, at what the people did, and we can say, all right, if they didn't remain faithful, maybe we should do the opposite. Maybe we should look at, at some of what they did and say, oh, we should stay far away from that. We, we, should, we should do something else. The temptation to get caught up in the different types of idol worship and to give into the ways of the world around us is as real today as it was then. Those, those are still, still temptations. They're still there. And I'm not saying we're called to just kind of stand up and constantly push back against culture or the world around us. In fact, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that, that God's people are called to actually engage the world in which they live in. And engaging in that world means not necessarily standing up and, and pushing back, but it means, as we'll see in, in, in a couple of weeks, working with our neighbors, no matter what they believe, to bring the shalom, to bring the peace to their communities, to our communities, because when they thrive, we thrive as well. When we face those inevitable difficulties, instead of forgetting our identity and running away from God, we can remember that we are loved by our Creator and we can run toward God. Uh, the other night while I was putting my kids to sleep, I, I left my phone in, a, in another room and when I, when I picked it up after they were down to sleep, I had six or seven messages from my dad. And my dad was, was cleaning out a, a closet in his, in his house and came across a box of photos from his childhood. Pictures I had never seen of my, my grandfather. Photos of my dad and his uncle on Lake Michigan when they couldn't have been more than five years old. He even found an old film reel that he hasn't quite been able to watch yet. Now there was something about those photos. I never met my dad's dad. I don't really know my dad's twin brother. And yet these photos reminded me that even though I was born in San Diego and have been a native Southern Californian my whole life, I still have roots in the Midwest. 
Because that's where I come from. That's where my family comes from. Sometimes we need those types of reminders. We need to remember our identity. We need to remember who we are. It's true with our, our heritage, and it's also true with our identity as followers of Christ. We need to remember that we are loved by God, adopted into a big old family, and invited to be a part of bringing God's community into our neighborhoods, into our communities, and into our world. Now, when we cling to that identity, it's easier to remain faithful to God when we're going through our difficult times. So even when they come, we're reminded that there is a bigger picture because we have this identity. We might not be able to explain all that's going on, but we know we're a part of a greater purpose. And remembering that identity encourages us to run toward God instead of running away from God. Um, my wife, Haley, was, was out of town uh, sat yesterday morning. She drove back up this morning from, from San Diego. And so I had all three kids for the first time overnight last night. And she left about 9 in the morning, so it was rainy out. It was, it was, it was wonderful. And I said, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do today? What am I going to do with these three kids for 24 hours by myself? And we looked outside, we saw the rain starting to break, saw the puddles, looked at the scooters in the garage. I said, oh, this is going to be great. Nothing says dad weekend like riding and running through puddles and splashing each other in the park. Now, while we were out riding and and my kids were going through puddles and jumping around, I, I noticed a few things about my kids that reminded me of some of what we're talking about in today's story. Ella, our oldest, she had no problem riding her scooter way ahead. Going way, she's confident on that thing. So she had no problem just going as far away as she can. Uh, she's older, she's been riding longer, she's more comfortable. It was easy for her to just, just go on ahead. And I had to constantly remind her, hey, look back. Make sure you can see me. Don't go too far ahead. Thomas, who's, who's three, he really wants to keep up with his big sister. Really wants to keep up with his big sister. But he's not quite as confident in his, his little legs. Don't go as fast as big sister's legs. So he'd scoot ahead of me a bit, and then he'd kind of look back to make sure that I was, wasn't too far ahead. And then poor Piper, our youngest, um, she wouldn't go anywhere without me holding her hand or putting her on the, the scooter and actually pushing her. She'd panic if I was more than arm's length away. Now, sometimes I, I think we distance ourselves from God and don't even realize it's happening. We're like my, my oldest daughter. We get so comfortable in, in the way we live and the, the places that we are that we just go throughout life without looking back and saying, all right, are we turning to God or are we just, without even acknowledging it, running, running away? We, we don't even have to realize what's happening. It's not usually intentional or sudden. It just, it just kind of happens. Maybe the lesson for us in this story, in the story of the fall of Israel and, and Judah, is that we need to take an honest inventory of where we stand. Are we constantly turning to God? Or are we just kind of scooting ahead without, without looking back and saying, God, are we, are we in the right place? Are we turning away, turning toward God, or are we turning away? The truth is, 
Even when we think we're in a right spot, when we're in a good spot, we can't see the whole story. So I'd encourage us all to kind of take that inventory and say, all right, are are we turning toward God? Are we remembering our identity? In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes this, "For For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Where do you most often hear this passage? Weddings. Weddings. Yet we usually focus on the, the first part of the passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. You got it all memorized, right? Love is, it does not boast. You know, it goes on and on. Love. We focus on, on the love part. And when we get to this, we get to this, we just kind of, we skip to the last part, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And there's a sentence in this, this verse, these two verses, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We do not know the whole story. We do not see the whole picture. And I love that as Paul is, is, is writing to Corinthians, encouraging this church to continue on, even though they don't know what's coming next. Say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't see the whole picture yet. I, I don't, but there is a time where I will see the whole picture. Paul admits that he can't see or understand the whole story, and as he admits that he only is really grasping a small part of it, a small part of the big picture, he clings to faith, hope, and love. He turns to God and clings to his identity. May we do the same thing, even though we can't always see the whole picture or know the whole story. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us to remember our identity and to run toward you, even when we don't understand what you're doing or what's happening around us. Help us to remain faithful at all times and in all things. We pray these things in your name. Amen.